Welcome to Warrior's Day Off, a podcast where we will share stories of life's unexpected struggles and conversations about the many faces of courage, strength, hope, and survival. So it's with an open heart, an open mind, and without judgment that we begin this experience together. I'm Jennifer Eby. Everyone has a story, and each is unique to their personal circumstances. At Warrior's Day Off, we're simply a place where guests and listeners can take a break from society's expectations or definition of what strong looks like, sounds like, and feels like. It's not our intention to provide medical or legal advice, nor to suggest that any one way is the right way. I'm inspired by these stories. Perhaps you will be too. Today's episode features Ashish Katari, executive coach, author, and founder of Happiness Squad, a company focused on helping individuals and organizations unleash the power of happiness and well being to achieve their full potential. Prior to starting Happiness Squad, Ashish was a partner in McKinsey's leadership practice. He served as the co-dean for the Centered Leadership and Adaptability and Resilience programs. He combines over two decades of consulting experience and formal training as an ontological coach and has helped thousands of leaders and their organizations succeed by building new mindsets and capabilities. In his book, Hardwired for Happiness, Ashish outlines nine proven practices that can help anyone increase joy, health, love, and meaning in their lives. I read Hardwired for Happiness, and it has already helped me. Ashish, welcome. Thank you so much, dear Jen, for having me. Congratulations on your book and on this new chapter of your life. Let's start with the title, Hardwired for happiness. The title of the book and all of this work actually came from this insight that I picked up over 450 different books that I read across spiritual wisdom traditions, psychology, neurosciences, all in the search for what makes humans flourish, what holds us back and what allows us to be able to live our best lives to unlock our full potential. And my insight, Jen, was the fact that we are hardwired for fear. And that wiring for fear and the way we see the world is often behind so much of our own suffering. And in this book, these nine practices that I write about are practices that we know are proven from psychology and neurosciences that they can actually hardwire our brain for happiness. They can truly help us develop new neural circuits, increase our own level of development of our brains to be able to hold complexity, to be able to match the increased complexity, volatility, and uncertainty in the world. And so that we can truly thrive rather than just survive in this world that we have created. You talk about words preset or hardwired for fear. Would you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So look, I mean, if you look at our brains, I mean, as a human species, we have evolved over millions of years. And as much as, you know, we think we are different than all the other animals out there, we share our wiring that has evolved over millions of years. And if you think 
up till 20,000 years ago, our brains were really wired to spot any of the threats that existed in the external environment and to be able to predict those threats so that we could either take action, right? So we could fight the threats, which were in the forms of tigers and lions and leopards and other carnivorous animals, right? That were all around us, either fight them and have them for dinner if there was a large group of us together or actually run away and, uh, and evade having, uh, you know, being dinner for one of those creatures. And so these, uh, our brains are evolved for that. Our bodies are designed for that. You know, our responses of when we see threat, our brains give off a shot of adrenaline and cortisol preparing our bodies for fight and flight. It's this capability, it's this hardwiring that is the reason why, you know, despite not being the largest or the strongest, we actually managed to rise to the top of the food chain. Unfortunately, if we look at the world around us, it doesn't actually represent anything in terms of the environment, like the world which was around for millions of years over which we have evolved. There's not many lions and tigers in our, in our environment. Now, I will say we do have some mountain lions that we run into every, every year uh, in Boulder, but it's not that common. But what we do have is an environment that is filled with threats to our psychological identity, right? Because the world is changing faster than we can control. There is one or other crisis that's out there constantly that we're swimming in. And unfortunately, our brains don't distinguish between physical threats and threats of the psychological nature. And hence, we respond in exactly the same ways. Now, the problem is this the response that is so well adapted for physical threats actually fails us when we are facing these psychological threats. Because instead of being able to see the full context, our attention goes to the threat and it appears bigger than it is. More importantly, what also happens is that our bodies aren't designed to get triggered seven times a day. You see, in the wild, we didn't face tigers and lions every day, seven times. We maybe ran into them once every six or seven days. And hence, our stress responses, which are actually designed to get you know, triggered, to push us towards performance, also had built in our parasympathetic responses that allowed us to cope once the threat passed. But in the world we are living in, we don't get a break. You know, when we get triggered six or seven times in the day, we constantly find ourselves swimming in this cocktail of adrenaline and cortisol. We continue to be activated. And as a result, over time, we experience heaviness, our bodies start to break down, um, and we face, you know, so many issues, both in terms of our mental health, but also our physical health. Would you elaborate a little bit more on when you said psychological identity, threats to our psychological identity, what you mean by that? Yeah, it's threats that basically leave us feeling like out of control. So we want to be able to control the world because if the world is something that is, you know, if things are happening that can, that can actually reduce our well-being or the safety of those we care about. Those are the threats. Now, let me tell you about the kind of threats that we are facing continuously, a barrage of these. And these have only gotten more over the last two, two and a half years. So 
ecological disasters. There is one every day, if not every week. And what's happening in Florida, before that it was the fires. Before that, it is the floods or the earthquake. So we have lots of ecological disasters that have actually gone up. We also have an environment where, you know, inflation is out of control. We, you know, will we be able to have a job? Will I be able to provide for my family? Budgets are already being stretched to thing with inflation. We are also swimming in a world where we're figuring this future of work out as we emerge out of the pandemic. You know, are we going to go to the office two days a week or three days a week? All of that is out there. And, you know, as we think about going there, you know, what will we do? Will we continue to thrive? How will we form connections? We also have the racial tensions and the unrest that we experienced over the last two years. You know, those fires are still smoldering. The structural changes haven't taken place. If you look at all of these, combine this also, by the way, with if you're in the business world, you know, you've got supply chain disruptions. We have a war that any day can actually become a global war. All of these are threats to our identity. If you just think about each of these things, we are a resilient species, right? We somehow have a way to just put them in the back of our head and keep moving forward. But our unconscious brains, just because we shifted out of our consciousness and we say, it is what it is, I'm gonna go forward, our unconscious brains don't stop reacting to these, especially because of the news and the messages we constantly are bombarded with. And that's the cause of the issue. So people probably selected this podcast episode because they wanted to get away from all of those topics, away from the news, away from all of these catastrophic events that seem to just come at us every day. What can we do now to shift that conversation so that people can let go of some of that fear yes. and anxiety that is just dominating every day? And I think that's why I love, I love uh, Jen, this podcast and the conversations that you've had with so many others. Look, I fundamentally believe that, you know, trying to control these things that seem to be coming at us in such rapid ways is not a possibility. Numbing it, putting it in the back isn't a possibility either. So these nine practices that I write about are all about actually instead shifting the focus from trying to control the uncontrollable to actually master our inner worlds. If we can actually work on fundamentally changing how we experience the world, how we make meaning, how we actually take care of our well-being, build community, we actually can truly break away from these and actually experience joy and well-being. You know, there's a beautiful saying, if you think about boats that get caught in storms, boats don't drown because of the water around them. No matter how turbulent the seas, boats drown because of the water that gets in them. This work is all about how do we actually build ourselves to be actually becoming watertight. So we can really truly surf the waves rather than fall prey to them. You'd mentioned you read over 450 books. You listened to over 2000 hours of lectures from thought leaders. Would you take us to your personal journey to this place of happiness and hardwired for happiness? And then afterwards, if you could just give us an overview of those nine practices, and then maybe you and I can dig in a little bit more deeply to a few of them together. That would be great. Wonderful. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. 
this all came through actually a personal crisis for me. And it wasn't like the crisis that so many experience, and I'm grateful for that, but it was a crisis on, on my own well-being. So I was, uh, you know, I take you back five years ago, six years ago when I started this journey. You know, I had come to the U.S. in, in 97, 25 years ago, actually, with about, uh, I was an immigrant. I came here with a job at IBM. I was 23. I'd come with $5,000 in my pocket, and that was a loan. Even that wasn't mine, and I knew two people. But what I had was 20 years of kind of a cultural upbringing, you know, learnings from my parents, from the world around that told me, look, if you work hard, if you give everything you have to doing the best that you can, you're going to do well, you're going to be successful. And if you're successful, you're going to be happier. Well, I did that for 20 years. I rose to be a partner at McKinsey, one of the leading firms. Uh, you know, I was earning more money that I could spend. I was happily married. I had a lovely four-year-old. We were living in Boulder. I was working at a firm that had amazing colleagues. We were doing work, which was really impactful. I was a lot in demand with my clients. I was well-known. So, you know, all these markers of success, I had checked off. And yet, at 43, I had found myself every day waking up with such a high level of anxiety. It was just unbearable. I would wake up with my knees almost crunched to my chest. I would wake up and I would feel like I was throwing up, you know, and I didn't know why. Why am I actually struggling so much? Nothing externally was actually the cause. A lot of my friends said, you know, you should go see a therapist. And I decided to not take their advice. Because I was like, I know in therapy, because I was also researching, you know, anxiety, I'm like a lot of therapy results in, you know, us cognitively reframing our experiences or the traumas we had. And I was like, I don't have a trauma from my past. And there is nothing externally that I can talk about that I can find that's causing me anxiety. So I knew the answer was somewhere else. And in that context, Jen, I actually managed to find a program that the firm McKinsey offered together with a partnership with an external firm that truly changed my life. You know, it was a program for a week for the first time in 20 years, I had stopped. I was by myself with a group of about 25, 30 people disconnected from technology in an old monastery in Portugal. And in that week, we truly experienced a process that allowed me to truly go inwards, to look into my core essence of being, and also get exposed to a lot of tools, if you will, from the worlds of psychology, mindfulness, you know, that I could see that already five days in, my fourth and the fifth day, I didn't wake up anxious. That program also helped me connect to who I really was. And to me, that essence was all about relationships. It was all about connections. It was all about community. I looked around and the other thing I found was like me, it wasn't that only I was anxious. There were so many others who were at the top of their game, living perfect lives, so to say, externally, but internally struggling. And I found what I was born on this earth to do. I wanted to learn as much as I could about these fields of psychology, about some of these tools, right? Mindfulness that have been around for thousands of years and really learn what I could to be able to then take those insights and bring it out to the world. To both be on a path that allowed me 
to actually thrive rather than just survive. And that's what I was doing. I was surviving every day with this anxiety and be able to make that gift available to others. So on that day, coming out of that program, I committed to a journey that will be a lifelong journey for me. 450 books, training as an ontological coach, studying with neuroscientists, studying with psychologists, as well as mystics from India and other places. You know, I was really like a sponge, absorbing what I could, applying it to my own life and applying it to the lives of others who I was working with, starting to see what worked, what didn't work, what was backed by science versus what were just some dogmas. And those are what I distilled, Jen, into these nine practices that I write about. So at the heart of these practices, at the heart of it, is the practice of awareness. You know, Anais Nen said this beautifully when she said, you see the world as you are, not as the world is. And so if we increase our awareness of how we are making sense of the world, we can truly start to shift and experience the world differently. We constantly swim in these beliefs of not feeling enough, good enough, smart enough, young enough, wise enough, thin enough, all of these, you know, we, we swim in them because they're all shaped by our stories, our beliefs of what's right, what's wrong, what's expected, what's not. And the unlock here in this practice is all about actually becoming clear about the observer that we really are and what actually forms it. And we can talk about that a little bit more. But if we don't become self-aware, we can't break, we can't wake up from this dream state where we are constantly living to please others, to be liked, to live into the expectations of others. So that's the heart of the practice. But once we start to master that, we can start to unlock all of the other eight practices. Practices like truly finding our purpose. You know, there are 30% of the people in the US, 20% globally spend most of their job hours that they spend into jobs purely as a way to survive as a way to earn a living there is no play there is no passion in that and how sad is that finding your purpose it's i mean for many people that's easier said than done i mean how do you do that yeah so great question you know it starts with introspection uh that whole notion of finding our purpose you know what for me really unlock this was, you know, this Japanese word called Ikigai. How can we find that that is at the intersection of what we love, what we are good at, what the world needs and is willing to pay for? Let's find the intersection of that. Now, the way to do that is truly to be able to first tune inwards rather than externally. We always first try and figure out what can I get paid for? And hopefully it is something that I'm good at and then we settle for that. Instead, Go back in your childhood from your growing up years. Look into your life while you work to say, what are those things that really bring you joy? What are those things you really love? It can be activities you do. It can be environments externally or internally in which you operate. Is it about creative problem solving that you love? Or is it about execution and really making sure things go according to plan? Start to really understand the environment that makes you come alive. Second, let's start with what we are really, really good at. What are our true strengths? We all have unique strengths that are different. No two of us are alike. 
And if we start from those two, again, starting inwards to come up with and dream up a range of different options. And I outlined an approach that I actually picked up from two teachers uh, at the Stanford Design School. You know, it's a technique called mind mapping. We can allow ourselves to come up in non-linear ways to really come up with a range of options that can allow us to do work that we love and we are good at. And then from that construct, now put in the lens of which of these are actually commercially viable, things that can earn us a living and are actually making a difference in the world. And through that, start to design our life. Viktor Frankl said this beautifully, you can't ask life what your meaning is. Life asks you that question. And it's up to us to mine our own inner worlds to design that pathway. And I think it is, it is actually really important because I, this question comes up so often, right, Jen, which is, yeah, but can you really do that? And I, you know, and I, I feel so strongly about this. Look, work, our jobs, is the activity that is second most activity that takes up our hours. The only thing that we do more than work is sleep. So imagine if that work that we are doing does not fulfill us, is not, does not hold meaning for us. How different is it then than anything more than bonded labor? How different are we? We become slaves to the world and the organizations and we lose agency. There is no difference. And I say, listen, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the world and to our loved ones to truly spend the time finding our meaning, our purpose, to design it, to do experiments and never give up till we get to that state. In the section when you're talking about defining your purpose and finding the personal why, you tell the hero's journey and you talk about the important role that mentors and helpers play as, and you mentioned three mentors who were very influential in your life, including Amy Fox. You may not know this, but we grew up together. Amy and I, oh my God. we know each other. She lived four houses down and we're childhood friends. Amy is one of my utmost gurus. It, she ran that program, you know, six years ago at McKinsey and she's a dear friend. And, you know, we're gonna be doing a lot of great stuff together as part of the, what she has built with Mobius. You know, she is following her purpose around yeah. helping leaders truly lead again, consciously from the inside. So yes, I was blessed. And what a treat to have grown up with her. Yeah. She is truly an unbelievable soul. Yeah, she reached out to me when I posted on Facebook that I was gonna be interviewing you. And she says, I, I can't believe like one of my dearest childhood friends and one of my dearest friends now as an adult and our roads are intersecting and how wonderful that is. It's just kind of funny. I wanna take you back for a minute to the concept of practices and Oh, a term that you used mastering, because I feel like they're sort of in conflict. I mean, practices, I love the term because we're never really a master of any of it. We're constantly growing. Everything's changing around us. Right. And so the idea of being a master of our emotions or a master, I mean, at any given moment, that's going to change on us. What do you think? Absolutely. So I think beautiful. So listen, there is a reason I call these practices, you know, because practice is what we do. And that when we do it enough, we start to become that. 
But practice is what we do. And let's be clear, you know, when I talk about hardwiring for happiness, what we are doing is developing circuits that can cope, that can help us compensate when our fear-based circuits, which have millions of years of evolution. So absolutely, we are gonna face setbacks, we're gonna fall back, we're gonna take a step forward. It's to be able to hold ourselves. And that's why one of the practices is that of self-compassion. We are so hard on ourselves. And, uh, and this notion of that is a practice, you know, when we actually fall down, when we don't match up to our own standard of what we think is great, being able to hold ourselves and say, hey, that's okay, we're human. Right. Mastery is actually, I talk about the path of mastery. And while I can truly say that some practices, like the practice of gratitude that I write about, has become hardwired into me where I actually truly see the world from a place of abundance. And I'll bring this to you in the story in just a minute, and I'll give you the big difference. I don't have to consciously think about what I'm grateful for anymore. I did for many years, but now that is just the way I see the world. It is akin, Jen, to if you look at any of the real masters, quote unquote masters, we call them, whether they're from the world of Aikido or Judo or painting, there's this notion of getting back on the mat and doing the same steps over and over and over again. Something that novices never do, right? You go do it three, four times, say, okay, I'm ready to progress to the next one. Now show me the next thing. And this notion of staying with those practices, those movements, so they can continue to kind of become embodied in us. So I'll tell you the story of gratitude. So this summer, as you know, we were traveling. We did a two-month trip around uh, in Europe. My wife and my son and I, it was amazing. It was wonderful. We had picked up lots of things along the way, as we all do. Mementos, of course, our biggest, what we had taken away was our experiences. But we had picked up things that were actually meaningful for us. Well, guess what? We landed in London, but none of our three bags actually showed up. In fact, not only did they not show up, but the airline had no idea where they were. I can say with complete honesty, I wasn't perturbed at all, almost to the annoyance of everybody. Because I said to them, listen, what matters is the three of us are here in one piece. You know, who cares? These are just things. There are people in not that far from us in Ukraine who lost everything. We've just lost three bags. Right. And the three most important people that matter are here. Who cares? It doesn't matter. That notion was not a conscious choice. That was just the way I was experienced in the world. And this ties back to our original starting conversation, right? The world is not going to change. Things get lost. Things are going to happen to us. But, you know, we can actually think about them and put them in the bigger context in which we are swimming and the rest of the world is swimming. And, you know, it doesn't take away from the fact that the bags are lost, but it gives us more agency. It gives us more control. It gives us clearer thinking because we're not doing that from a place of anger and frustration and anxiety. We can do it with a lot calmer mind. So obviously I did all the things that needed to be done, called the airlines, called the airport. And guess what? Five days later, they did show up. But those five days of suffering that I could see, you know, my wife and my son go through was not my experience. By the way, neither was the, neither was the super excitement that the bags are arriving. And I was again on the other side saying, don't get too excited. They said bags are coming. We have no idea if everything is in there. They're completely broken. There's no things, you know, so it, it really allows you to actually truly have this level of calmness 
to take what comes. If you had to pick one practice that you felt would give you the fastest short-term bump, if you would, in feeling happier, gratitude? Gratitude is it, absolutely. Rook, and it works in amazing ways. So if you look at the work done by, you know, Professor Marty Selgman in, in 20 years ago, actually, as part of the positive psychology movement that he started, they, he had, you know, people write down three things they are grateful for every day for eight weeks. And they monitored, you know, what was the experience of people. Even the most depressed actually experienced a lift in how they were experiencing the world. Neurologically, as we practice gratitude, our brain patterns actually change. Our left to right attunement, how much, uh, if you will, our brains light up when we actually study them, fundamentally changes. And so there is no practice like the practice of gratitude that, that can actually fundamentally re-sculpt our neural circuits to experience things differently. And by the way, uh, Sonia Lubomirsky, another professor of happiness who's done lots of this work, built on that work and actually found that you don't even have to do it every day. Even if you do it once a week, but do it with intention, that has almost a similar effect. So in terms of you know, the investment of time, it takes every night or once every three days, sitting down and writing down consciously, what am I grateful for? And the feet and the impact within eight weeks. So think about that, right? Highest ROI in terms of actually helping us experience the world differently. That's the power of gratitude. This is what one of the things I loved about your book is that you provide so, not solutions, but you provide practices like recommendations and steps to take that anyone can do and incorporate into their life without it being overwhelming. And how am I going to start? And do I have to do all these things all the time and perfectly? So what you just said about the gratitude piece even that, if you can't write three every single day, if you do it just every other day or a couple of days a week or once a week, that you'll still be able to receive that benefit and that lift in your happiness. Yes, 100%. And that was my intent, uh, Jen, as I wrote this book, you know, because I read, as I said, so many different books. These nine practices are in almost every wisdom tradition. It doesn't matter whether you practice Buddhism or you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or you're, it doesn't matter which faith you come from. They have been there all along. Why did I write a book? Why one more book on happiness? My focus exclusively when I wrote this book was to actually shift people from awareness to doing. How do I make these things so simple for people to do that they actually are able to practice them. And they are able to practice them. And by doing that, they actually are able to fundamentally shift and integrate them and elevate their consciousness. That was the work. So helping people from knowing to doing to eventually in their life being. Yeah, this, it was great. So I'm gonna take you back to the third practice, which was embrace mindful living in this interview. I'm practicing mindful listening. And that's not so easy to do in an interview because I, you may say something and it's going to make me think, what do I want to ask as a follow-up? But I'm trying really hard to practice mindful listening. So thank you for that. 
Yeah, no, it's, and it is so hard, right? It is so hard. Look, it, it is hard because first of all, again, our brains, if you look at all the research at Harvard, you know, our mind is a wandering mind and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Because think about 50 to 60% of the time our mind wanders. And it is amazing that we actually just accept that. Because imagine if your arm did its own thing 50, 60% of the time, we would not be okay with that. Or our leg decided to just move 50% of the time on its own versus where you wanted it to go. We'd go see a doctor. But you know, we live in this world because everybody's mind wanders. We say, hey, it's okay. That's just how it is. And frankly, over the last 20 years, this wandering tendency has gotten even more accentuated. We have truly become dopamine addicts, much thanks to social media, constant interruptions. We now, when we stand in queues, or if you're going up an elevator, have our phones and we're looking for, I don't know what, but what we're looking for and creating are these dopamine hits. Every time we pull up, every time we see a little button, it's like, oh, what's out there? What's novelty? And so we have almost given away our ability to focus. And when our mind wanders, where does it go? Many times it either goes in the future and future, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about things that are going to come get us. We don't always think about all the exciting, wonderful things that are going to happen. We do do that sometimes, but 90% of the time we're thinking about what might get us. And when we go in the past, we are often not thinking again about all the good things that have actually happened. But we often think about what didn't go well, what somebody said, what somebody did. And so we end up creating constantly either anxiety or anger, resentment, shame, guilt, many of these feelings that we kind of find ourselves in. And that's why this practice of mindfulness is so important. And I bring this to life, you know, for your listeners, just through this. Imagine if you get a performance review. This is how extreme this is. Let's say you had a performance review and you sat down with your manager and they said, look, Jen, great year last year. Here's three things that you did really, really well. A, B, and C. Here's some feedback on what you can improve on. Now you leave the meeting. A week later, what are you thinking about? You've already, you've already normalized all the things you did well that you probably did better than anybody else, but we are obsessing about, well, they said I need to do this and that way I'm not good at it. Oh my God, they saw I'm not good enough. And we continue to wallow in that. And that's the power of mindfulness by actually being in the moment here and now, we can truly focus on being present rather than a slave to the future or the past. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was driving along one day after reading your book and I was worrying about something and I was feeling some anxiety about it. I was in the car and I just said, just focus on now, Jen, just come yes. back to now. Stop. You know what you're doing. You're just looking at something that may never happen. Stay in the moment. It was amazing how quickly my breathing changed everything. So thank yes. you. Thank you for that. Reminder. Yeah. And breath is the way breath is the fastest way, right? To talk about again, tips, things that people do right away. Breath is so beautiful. You know, because unlike our brains that can at any point be in the past and the future, our bodies are always in the here and now. And we can only breathe in this moment. I can't breathe in the past and I can't breathe for the future. I can breathe in the here and now. And so the breath and what you did, Jen, was so beautiful because it allowed you 
by just focusing and even saying, I'm gonna follow my breath. And by the way, it takes four or five deep breaths. That's all it takes to actually bring it, bring the mind from where it was going to here and now and experience that calming effect. Yeah. Experience that calming effect that we know how to create. Our, you know, our parasympathetic systems allow us to bring in that calmness. And that's what you experience and it's available to everybody. The whole concept of living mindfully, though, you take it to all these other places in that, whether it's walking mindfully or, you know, being in nature and, and smelling and seeing and, and then you take it into the business world, into a meeting, because how many of us have been in meetings where people are looking at their phone or doing something else? So it's really, it was really interesting. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. You know, and that was my insight. I mean, there is so much work, you know, there is so much talk there about meditation. I always run into leaders, literally one of my lead, one of the leaders I coach said this to me, Jada, that's where that mindful meetings came from, by the way, right? It's, it's, he said to me, Ashish, my mind is so full. I don't have time to be mindful. It is bursting. I have more things to do. I don't have time for five minutes or 30 minutes that everybody says I should meditate. And by the way, what a fallacy. I mean, mind, look, sitting meditation is an actual really important thing that we should do. But just because we don't do that, first of all, doesn't mean that we can't be mindful. Even more importantly, let's say if you did do meditation, meditation for 30 minutes, okay? You somehow said, I'm gonna be the person who's gonna just make this a practice 30 minutes every day, I'm gonna meditate. I'm gonna sit on a cushion and I'm gonna do this. But then I spend the next 14 hours, 13 hours, every five minutes checking my phone or getting distracted how calm do we really think our mind is going to be for that 30 minutes when you're sitting down? Right. The natural state of our brain, which we are working in 12, 13 hours is going all over the place. So even in those 30 minutes, it's going to be going all over the place. And so that's why this notion of how do we actually make everyday life mindful, you know, small doses here and there. And so that over time, we fundamentally start to structurally change and gain control over our focus. I think culturally too, I mean, I certainly allowed myself to go into this vortex, this trap where I was, you know, I, I didn't need much sleep and I could do, I could multitask. I could have three jobs. I could do this. I could do so many things at the same time. I was, you know, a warrior. <laughs> and, until, me too. Until me it too. Broke me. <laughs> yeah. And so again, this notion of that's not going to change, right? But through breath, which is with us. I mean, we breathe every moment. We can't survive without breath. And so using that, you know, really as the support, and just saying, I am actually going to use that as a way to be with whatever is happening right now. One of the Buddhist uh, teachers who's no more, he passed away uh, earlier this year, Thichat Nan, says this beautifully. And he says that appointment with life is in the here and now. Yeah. And so many of us miss that. And this multitasking that you talk about, right? I talk about that too in the book. It's a myth. It really is a myth. Only about 10% of the people are truly able to multitask. All of us are serial. You know, we are context switching very, very rapidly when we actually think we're doing two, three things. And every time we shift our attention, we're actually draining our brain. 
because the brain has to actually say what we were doing, move on to the next thing, right? And as a result, we lose efficiency. We lose our mental clarity. We lose actually valuable mental resources that make us make suboptimal decisions that, that make us actually things take longer. And, you know, I, one of the things we did, uh, I did with one of my clients, you know, this was a client that had a big IT department and we played around with this. It was a version of mindfulness. So I said to them, listen, I invite you to do the following. You choose these, find eight hours in a whole week and you decide how you want to chunk up that eight hours. It might be four, two hour blocks. It might be one block that is four hours and the other days it's two and two, whatever you decide. I don't know your context, you decide it. But all I ask is in those eight hours that you choose to mindfully focus on what you're doing, you eliminate all distractions. Turn off your phones, turn off your notifications, get out of your email, just focus on what you're doing. And do it as a team, right? So you set a norm that nobody's gonna interrupt you when it's your time to actually do what you're trying to do. You know the effect on that? Unbelievable increase in energy, but I'll give you something else. Their productivity, and you know, they were doing this kind of work that we could actually measure productivity. Their productivity went up by 30%, 30%. By changing nothing other than just being with what they were doing. So that is the power that is in us, that is available to us. But as you said, we just give it away. We give away and we tune into every distraction. We give away our time to anybody who shouts loudest and we are not able to be our best self. I think some of that too, like certainly in when you're in fight or flight or in survival mode. I mean, I know this was true for me. I was in go, 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 go mode and in focusing on tasks, I didn't have to focus on the emotions. 100%. Oh my God. How many of us numb ourselves through work? Let me just put it into work because then I don't have to think about it and then I get exhausted, right? So true. So many people use work as a distraction to really focus in on and really process some of those hard emotions. But how did you flip that switch and find a way to just be? Yeah. So listen, for me, it actually required me to fundamentally change and put structural barriers in place that would allow me to do that. One of the messages I talk about in the book is if you don't control your time, somebody else will control it. And so there are some things that I did. So first of all, I say, be selfish. And people say, what do you mean? Selfishness is the bad thing. I'm like, no, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. You have to actually first take care of yourself. So what did I do? I actually first literally hardwired into my calendar the times I needed for myself to be my best, my meditation practice, time to work out, these blocks of time where I was just working, right? Focus time. Next, I hardwired the things I needed for my family. What were the non-negotiables? I really wanted to be with them, just with them. I would also put my phones away for that time. So I hardwired that. And then what was left, Jen, I said, okay, now I have X number of hours left. This is the time I'm actually going to put towards all the things I need to do for others, for work, for friends, and not try and stuff everything into that bag and have the courage then to be able to say no, because it requires us to do that. Otherwise we are creating a world of anxiety, aren't we? 
because we're basically saying yes to so many things and then we feel pressured to be able to deliver. And then instead of slowing down and doing everything well, we rush through them. Then we become our own biggest critic because then we're saying, oh, I didn't do as good of a job as I really wanted on that, right? And you can see how this vicious cycle started. By the way, the amazing thing that happened as I started to do these things, Jen, which is like really blocking that time, hardwiring that time to be really focused, hardwiring the time to be at my best, my efficiency and productivity increased so much that I actually could do more, really do more because I was that much more efficient. I was that much more effective. Less time feeling torn and with that inner battle oh my about God. what you should or shouldn't be doing and all of that part of it too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the other thing that I consciously do now, Jen, and which is an invitation to many um, of your listeners, we have gotten so used to like basically scheduling every minute of our time. We do that for work, but we do that at home too. I have so many friends who's like literally weekends are filled with this game, this game, this game of their kids, shopping, doing this errand, that. I mean, everything is booked. So when life doesn't go the way, then they're constantly feeling like, oh my God, I'm behind. And so I always leave 20, 30% of my time on my calendar empty. I don't schedule that. My weekends, half of my weekends, we try and actually consciously not schedule so that we can truly, again, be with the moment. We can actually be aware of what is coming up. And then from a lot more conscious place, choose the things we say yes to and choose the things we say no mm -hmm. to. So truly be able to be there, right? Versus, as you said, constantly feel like, oh man, I am not able to do this. I'm able to do this. Feel, feel really torn. Your moods and emotions. I'd like to talk about this because so many people are struggling. You, you see angry outbursts on airplanes and traffic on school pickup lines. Yeah. So look, I think the practice that really helped me, the kind of, you know, the more philosophy, if you will, on this. I think the field of ontology, right? Ontological coaching, I think actually is really, really powerful as a way to kind of process it. Because, you know, when we experience anger, when we experience fear, these are such strong emotions and moods that they ride us. They make us do things that we later regret. And, and so we have to be able to work through them. And so if you think about the observer that we are, which is at the core of this work around ontology, we talk about three core things that make up the unique observer that's actually experiencing what we experience. Of course, there is the mood, there is the emotion. There is also feelings in our body, our somatics. What do we tr truly experience? And then the third really important aspect is that of language. And what do I mean by language? When we are angry, there is a story. The story has components of somebody has done something that has actually reduced my possibilities for the future. That something that somebody did was wrong. Again, the wrong is based on what? Based on our belief of what we think is right and wrong. We also assume it was ill-intentioned. So there's a story there as well. And hence, we then say, I am going to do X, right? And anger and resentment, which are the two emotions I talk about in that, in that particular chapter. Resentment is when usually we experience an injustice, it's done by somebody superior to us, somebody that we can't actually have an outburst because you know we know that's not gonna serve us well. 
So it's this silent emotion, right? It's a toxic emotions that does more harm. It's a little bit like drinking poison, expecting the other to die. It does more harm to us versus anger, which is usually to somebody who is either a peer or you know somebody who is junior to us, where we feel we can act out, which we also later regret. And so immediately when we are experiencing this emotion or this mood of anger or resentment, the first thing that we can actually do is to tune into our bodies. What are we really feeling? The second thing that we can do is through breath, really bring in that centering, you know, the calmness that you described when you were in a car and you brought it. We can actually use that power of breath to really tune inwards, allow our parasympathetic system to come online to get the clarity. Now, you can only do this once you are centered and calm, because otherwise the emotion, the, the energy is too strong. From that place, we can now actually look at the story, our beliefs, beliefs about what's right, what's wrong, belief about the intent, and consciously start to think about what else might be true here. And more importantly, what acts can we do? What actions can we take that can allow us to express that feeling of something is not right in ways that might be more constructive? Right. We can make a request. We can actually make a complaint. We can truly speak into what is coming up for us rather than shout and give away that power that we have. Um, so I think it's those things together that actually, and I provide so many examples in the book around different emotions and how we can actually use these practice, this practice and kind of really disaggregating by being mindfully present with what's happening to process through them rather than numb them and say it doesn't exist or we're gonna bottle it up or act out. But I'll tell you this, uh, Jen, this one practice, you talk about practice. You know, as I said, gratitude, I'm, you know, on a scale of one to 10, on a nine or a 10. It's so integrated. Mastering your emotion truly is mastering. I myself on a probably on a journey on a one to 10 on a scale of three or a four. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lifelong practice. You have to keep doing it. And when you actually do something in the grip of this, that is not optimal. We have to hold ourselves with self-compassion. We are human. Take the lesson from it and say what I'm going to do different the next time. Right. We have to let go of that judgment. The resentment piece, you gave an example of a teaching by Buddha, which I loved, which was the arrows. Uh, Yeah. So listen, it's this notion, right? That when things happen to us, even if somebody does something, that event happened in the past, it was a one time thing, but we continue to live in that. And constantly, every time we think about that, what we experience over and over, even though the act is gone, is that trauma, is that story. It's the same turmoil and the mix of, you know, emotions. So it's this notion of we, the first arrow is fired by somebody, but we then take that and keep hitting ourselves over and over and over with the same arrow. Prolonging the suffering. Right. Prolonging the suffering, increasing the suffering, actually. Um, And we get stuck in this pattern. Now, even in cases where something terrible happened, right? And this is the other piece. I invite people to consider forgiving, not forgetting, not approving, but forgiving. Because the act of forgiveness is as much about us 
more about us than the other person. You know, we choose to forgive and we choose to move on, to truly live our life and end the suffering that we cause to ourselves. I mean, we hold on to these things. They become literally embodied in us. They are these tension that just stays with us. And we pick these knots up so often, yeah. so often. I always think about, and I, you know, I was, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's deeply spiritual, he's Christian. And we were talking about this. When we pray, when we follow a faith, when we follow, I mean, we can look at Christ and his last words was, forgive those who sin against me because they don't know what they do. And he said that at that moment where they were taking his life. And he chose even with that to be able to forgive. And here we are, if somebody says something or even looks at us this way, we can hold on to that slight for so long. And yet we pray, and it's the same, Hindus have the same thing, right? We have these things. And so these practices are all about actually, you know, really, truly, kind of following these spiritual teachers that have come before us, who've shown us the power of these practices. There are so many topics within this chapter or this practice of mastering your moods and emotions that are so important and relevant to so many people. I hope you'll come back and talk to me again because we obviously don't have a lot of time to to get into befriending your fears and talking about guilt and shame, but I do want to just cover a couple of other things. If yes, okay. sure. We've talked about five of the different practices in your book, and then you have fuel up for compassion and kindness. Can we touch on some of those a little bit as well? Yes, have, uh, absolutely. We absolutely. Okay? Fueling up with compassion and kindness is about fundamentally, again, taking control of our lives to create the positive energies. When we give, we get back so much. We don't have a choice on what the world gives us, but we have a choice of what we give the world. And even as simple as giving the gift of a smile, giving the gift of attention to the other person is the gift that today is so not present. There's so many people who we kind of go through life and we, we don't even see them. They feel unseen. That's what that practice is about. And I even, you know, the first thing that I write about in that book is about even starting with being compassionate to ourselves. And I'll invite you to consider these two scenarios to bring to light how important this actually is. So let's say, Jen, you and I are, you know, walking down and you're coming this way. And if I'm coming this way, um, and let's say I have a coffee in one hand, a laptop in my other hand, and you see I'm clearly in a rush and I'm going, and I trip. What would you say to me as I trip and fall on the floor, like coffee's there, I've got coffee on myself, laptop. What would you say? What's the first words that you would say to me? Oh my gosh, are you okay? Exactly. That's what we often do. Oh my God, are you okay? We'll do that to strangers, won't we? Like you and I know each other, but even if there was somebody you didn't know, you would do that. Let's play the same thing again. Same scene. We're both walking across from each other. You're coming this way. This time you have a coffee and a laptop. I also have one, but you trip. What's the first thing you say to yourself? Oh my God, I can't believe I just did right? that. <laughs> yeah, or more colorful language depending on where you are, right? We are so bad to ourselves. The words we use unheard by anybody. We would never say that to anybody. 
but we say that to us all day long. And by the way, in doing that, we become rigid in ways to be able to hold when others truly make a mistake that affects us. If something happens to them that doesn't affect us, we can be compassionate. But if somebody drops the ball on a project and now it affects you, we can be so unforgiving. We get so angry. This notion of mastering emotion, that anger comes from, how could you do that? And the seeds for how could you do that get sown by how could I do that? Our own self-compassion. I think so I talk about this notion of, look, starting with self-compassion. And I think Kristen Neff has done such amazing work around this topic of self-compassion. And I bring many of her teachings and her research into the book on real simple ways in which we can actually start every day by being compassionate towards ourselves, and then small acts that we can do to practice kindness and compassion in our day-to-day -day lives. They don't have to be big acts, but it's these small acts generate this huge amount of positive emotions, this amount of positive energy that can fill our life with so much joy. How have things changed for you as a father and a husband and a leader? So look, I was Jen, the classic stereotype of so many amongst us, which is I for 20 years pursued wealth at the expense of health, love, and meaning. Now, love, luckily, I didn't make too many withdrawals, but I for sure made withdrawals from health and from meaning. In fact, meaning was absent because I was doing a job that earned a living, but it wasn't truly something that I was deeply passionate about. As I pivoted, as I found my ikigai, meaning came into my life. This notion of how do I actually really master these skills, these capabilities to be able to help others. As I think about my life now, it is all about now pursuing meaning, but not again at the expense of health and love. So how do I truly live a wholesome life? Also, how do I actually create wealth, but create wealth through meaning rather than in the absence of it? And so that's how my life has changed, right? My life over the last five years is so much more fuller, so much more joyful, and I have so much more energy for it because I always think about those dimensions constantly and I'm aware of them. And hence I can intentionally choose to say yes to things that are in the service of where I'm going rather than trying to please everybody and chase a script that is just an external script. It's not coming from within. And that's what I hope, right? That as uh, the readers go through the book, that's my hope for them too. My hope is not that they're gonna be happy for the rest of their life and not face suffering because that's just not real. But my hope is that with intentionality as they choose the practice that is most impactful for them and they start on that path of mastery, they start to experience more joy, more health, more love and more meaning. So the power is more, it is not all. And when we fall back, we hold ourselves with compassion and commit to the next day. Let go, commit to the next day and go back. Thank you so much for the important work you continue to do and for writing this wonderful book. You, you will help a lot of people. Visit happinesssquad.com to learn more about Ashish Kotari and his book, Hardwired for Happiness, Nine Proven Practices to Overcome Stress and Live Your Best Life. 
I will include links to your website on Warrior's Day Off as well. Congratulations again, Ashish, and thank you Thank you, so you much. Jen. Thank you for talking to me on a Sunday evening yourself. It's my real pleasure. I so enjoyed the conversation, and, and congratulations as well to you for doing such amazing work. I mean, we, so much of this is needed. Thank you for inviting me to this wonderful community. It was a real joy. A special thanks to my friends for making this podcast possible today, and to the listeners out there. Thanks for giving me a chance and for your time. I find inspiring stories are all around. You just have to tune in. Thanks for joining us today at Warrior's Day Off. This is Jen Eby. You got this.